Today, we're going to be hearing from one of the leading minds on men's work and masculinity. And for you men that are listening, if you're really open, stay open to it. You may have a little bit of an emotional experience on this one. It may bring up some stuff that you've been working through. And for women that are curious and say, maybe this one isn't about me, it's really an opportunity to hear what I think a lot of us men go through and don't want to admit to ourselves. So I hope you really enjoy. Welcome to The Dream Beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on The Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting, and how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. Hey everybody, today I'm excited to have the founder of Man Talks with us. It's an international organization focused on men's wellness, success, and fulfillment. He's also a coach, a facilitator, a teacher, a podcast host, and a speaker. And most of his teachings are based on Jungian, Jungian psychology, gestalt, or is it gestalt? I never know which way to say it. Cognitive behavioral therapy, Buddhism, and, and Taoist traditions. A lot of fancy words that are hard to say today. <laughs> uh, and uh, again, just please welcome Connor Beaton. He's an incredible dude. Thank you for being here with us. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you and to catch up and connect. I'm, I'm excited. Absolutely. And it's, this is a personal one for me too, because, you know, you and I connected over a dinner a while back, I think it was at the Mavericks group. And thereafter, I think I connected to say, I'd love to get a men's coach. And I worked with someone on your team and it just really helped me navigate what's turned out to be one of the more difficult things for me to solve, which I imagine is not so unique, right? Understanding that polarity of what does it mean to be fully embodied in the masculine? What does it mean to be in relationship with the feminine? And what about those two polarities within myself? So again, just really appreciate the work you do. And uh, normally when I open up, I talk about kind of what was the early dream. But I think today, because of the work you do, I'd love to talk about what your early concept of being a man was like. Your early concept of what, you know, the, the, the goal of my masculinity when I grow up was going to be like. Yeah, I, I don't think I, yeah, like most guys, I don't think I really thought about it too much back in the day. I think it's one of those things that for most of us as men, we look at in hindsight, you know, there's kind of a reflection process that happens as we look at the, the sort of social conditioning or the unspoken messages that we received growing up. And for me, you know, I, I grew up in Northern Alberta in Canada, which for, for all the Americans, I always say is like the Texas of Canada. It's got lots of guns. There's a ton of oil. It's one of the biggest oil producers in the world. Uh, there's lots of big trucks. There's lots of country music. You know, there's bars called Cowboys, except six months out of the year, it's minus 30, right? So the, <laughs> wow. that's where the discrepancy resides. But, you know, within that type of culture, there's a very, what I would refer to as a, a sort of a one-dimensional framework of masculinity and what it means to be a man. And again, this, this isn't something that I was sort of aware of back then, but there was a lot of, you know, I played hockey, I played baseball, I played football, I played sort of all the sports and, and the commentary that I felt like I had to live into in my future was be a good provider, uh, make a lot of money, become successful, do the things that sort of create the appearance of status, of strength, of power. 
And under no circumstances should you or should I show any real type of flaw or weakness. And so, you know, I, I did my best to try and live into that. I developed a decent career. I was traveling the world. I had this beautiful girlfriend. Um, I had the toys, the motorcycle, the Mustang, although maybe that's not exact. Maybe the Mustang isn't what a lot of guys want to go for, but I like that five liter, you know, burn the tires out kind of thing. But I was also kind of searching because it, it didn't feel really fully fulfilling. You know, it felt like it kind of lacked some depth and I, I explored a number of different things, yoga, a whole bunch of other traditions, but I think that was kind of the, the framework that I thought I needed to live into, that I needed to kind of build this life of success, of affluence, of status, of power, um, and that I needed to kind of do those things by hiding some of my weaknesses, how I was struggling, not really letting people know what was going on behind the scenes of my life. And I did that fairly well until it really backfired on me. Um, so maybe I'll just pause there because I think I've sufficiently answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. It does, it does very much bring to mind that I think most of us are unconscious about the things that we've taken in as the model that we're trying to build early on. And I know in your book, you open up pretty powerfully with the story of the turning point and the rock bottom moment for you. And I, I feel like people you, you know, should pick up the book to really hear that in detail. But I'm actually curious about not your path and maybe some of the people you work with, which is the winners, the guys that just win too much too early and never have that moment in a parking lot where they're having to face the existential crisis. I mean, I'm, I'm in New York, right? So I see it everywhere. I'm in, I'm in YPO. I'm in these networks of people that have just won too much in my mind. I'm curious to hear what happens when there's not the gift of the rock bottom on the other side of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been fortunate over the last decade that the men that I, you, a mentor of mine actually in one of my recent weekends pointed out that the men that I generally seem to attract are the A-type high performing, really successful guys. You know, they're the hedge fund owners, they're the top of their game rappers and athletes, you know, Olympic athletes. Like I work with some really extraordinary men and and I've been very fortunate to do so. And for a lot of these men, what's interesting is that they've oftentimes had a tremendous amount of success in their life that has been not always, but quite frequently burst out of challenge that they experienced early on in life and that they didn't really know how to deal with, that people didn't teach them how to carry or or work through whether it was, you know, witnessing their parents' divorce or experiencing some form of abuse or neglect or abandonment, you know, being adopted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the list can just go on and on. And what that can build within us is this incredible strength that is gritty and resilient and can achieve and can accomplish uh, extraordinary things. But the byproduct of that, that I've seen within a lot of men is that what any, what ends up happening is that we do a couple of things. Number one, these men will oftentimes put a sense of fulfillment, depth, meaning, purpose on the other side of accomplishments. And so they start to hedge and they'll start to hedge and say, I'm not going to allow myself to feel happy, fulfilled, successful, 
in this moment, it's going to be on the other side of closing this deal, buying this company, selling this company, you know, achieving this, uh, you know, this, this big accolade within my field. And then they get there and because they've hedged so much of their worth, their internal value, their internal sense of fulfillment and confidence on the other side of this, it can never live up. And so what happens is they, they get there, there's this kind of vacancy and hollowness that shows up in this moment that they thought was going to be tremendous. And then in, in, instead of sort of pausing and saying, okay, maybe this, this mechanism that I've built within my life isn't workable, it's not actually producing the internal results that I want, they keep going. They sort of double down and they produce more and they output more and they build bigger, they build more faster, you know, et cetera. Until either it leads to some sort of rock bottom or it alienates them in a really um, sort of painful way where they don't feel understood, they don't feel connected, they don't feel a deep sense of love from the people around them. And there's this kind of loneliness that starts to emerge in their life and they'll start to seek it in other places they'll start to seek this attachment or this depth or this fulfillment from other things right traveling excessively you know going on hundreds of ayahuasca retreats and just sort of immersing themselves in this constant never-ending cycle of psychedelics um, but they'll start to look for this depth somewhere outside of them in the world, because that's what we are often told that we need to do as men, is that we need to explore externally for a very long time to try and find something meaningful internally. So hopefully I've answered that in as direct a way as possible. I think, you know, the, the side effects, and this, this isn't to sort of downgrade or put down what these men do, because the majority of the men that I work with they are phenomenal human beings. They, you know, they have accomplished some truly remarkable things where I'm just in awe and wonder of like, damn, how did you do that? You know? But sometimes the side effect of that is that they've had to sacrifice family. They've had to sacrifice friends. They've had to sacrifice a sense of internal worth or meaning or value, or happiness. And so the, that's sort of the byproduct of what they feel like they're often missing. You know, like I'll give you an example of I've been working recently with a few men that are within the music industry. One is in uh, one of the largest heavy metal bands, and the other one's a very famous rapper. Very different lives, you know, very different upbringing, very different careers. But at the core of what both of these men are dealing with is that both of them had success very young. You know, they hit it in their early 20s. They really started to crush it. And one is quite a bit older, you know, he's in his late 50s or early 60s, and the other one is, is in his 30s, and he's still trying to grapple with it. But despite the fame, despite the accolades and the accomplishments, both of them have come to, to work with me because they had thought that by achieving and accomplishing that they would create some type of depth and meaning within their life. And after winning all these awards and selling so many records and et cetera, et cetera, that thing that they were still hoping to feel is missing. And so that leaves us with a big question mark of like, well, why the hell does that happen? You know, why is it like, is it a lie that achievement and accomplishment um, is unfulfilling or unrewarding? Probably not. You know, like there's some very real benefit and merit in achieving some great things, um, but there's still something missing. And so maybe I'll, I'll pause there because I feel like I gave a good amount for you to sort of pick on and decide where we go next.
Yeah. And I, I mean, one, I, I, I love what you're sharing and it's, there's so many different lenses to look through. And I think the place I go, because I believe I was probably one of those people in many ways, not at the level of like a heavy metal superstar or rap star or something like that. But in my own world, I felt like I had justified where I was at. And when someone would try to reflect back at me, someone I care about would reflect back like, Hey, I think something's off. And I'm like, but look at all I've done. Like, uh -huh. I, and I wouldn't say it that way, but my system would reject the invitation from the outside and say, no, you don't know the path I'm on. You don't know my calling. And so I am wondering for people that are in that, how do we interrupt the pattern? How do we bring in that awareness? What are some of the signs that maybe we're like, someone's listening and saying, is that me or is that not me? How would I even know where I'm at? Yeah. I mean, th there's a couple of different things like in Carl Jung and his framework, you know, and I think this kind of applies across any real therapeutic modality or most spiritual modalities. Uh, but Jung said, you know, the first step in the therapeutic process in any sort of psychological training or development or expansion, right? If we were wanting to expand ourselves as men, as leaders, uh, in whatever capacity we're wanting to expand ourselves in, the first step is confession. So the first step is actually beginning to it to circle near the territory of admitting that maybe something's mi missing. And that's, that's actually quite challenging. You know, if you're a man who built a tech company at the age of 20 or 22, and you've built up this, you know, this really substantial business, you, you employ hundreds of people, your, the, your vision and your dream and your hard work and your ethic has now built something that's paying for the lives of hundreds of people and producing a product that is supporting thousands or tens of thousands or millions to admit that there might be something missing internally is a very hard thing to do to just, to just say that out loud, you know, or even to just come into contact with the sensation physically, because it might not be a rational thought. And we, in our Western culture, specifically within our within the male population, I would say, within the masculine portion of our population, we over-index the rational mind way too much. We give it way too much credit. We have burdened our rational minds and our logical minds with trying to solve every kind of problem under the sun. And they're not meant to sort through emotional challenges they're not meant to oftentimes even come to a conclusion or, or, or create a, a repair within our relational challenges. So like Einstein had a great quote where he said, the rational mind is a faithful servant and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And we've created a culture that honors the servant of the rational mind has forgotten the gift of the intuitive mind of our sort of gut intelligence. And so what I usually say to most men is, you've probably felt something inside of you, deeper within you, whether you want to say deep within your psyche, deep within your mind, your heart, your soul, your body, whatever language you want to put to it, you've felt something that's just in the background. Like there's this uneasy sensation, you know, there's this disconnection. Some guys will describe it as a numbness. Some guys will describe it as a void. Some guys will describe it as an emptiness. Some guys will describe it as a sort of discontent. But 
however they describe it, there's this connection to something's missing. And so really the first sort of step is just, can you be aware of that part? And it's not that we're going looking for a problem. I want to make that very clear, right? We're not trying to like hunt down, uh, like, am I, am I fucked up? Is there something wrong with me? You know, <laughs> like that's yeah. not what we're doing. It's just, can you be courageous enough and brave enough as a man to say, I've, I've felt that, you know, I have with all the success with the millions of dollars that I've made, I have felt the void. I felt the emptiness. I felt the accolade. Like I remember this is a couple of years ago. I was working with a quite prominent lawyer and he had built out this incredible, incredible business and was worth a tremendous amount of money. And we'd, we'd been working together for about a year and a half. And for a year of the time that we'd been working together, he'd been working on this big deal that was essentially going to double um, the revenue and the income of his business. And it was going to sort of put him at the top of his field and yada, yada, yada. And he had been talking about how excited he was and, you know, what he was going to do with the money and private jets and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'll never forget after it happened, the day after it happened, I, you know, the day it happened, I got a text message, you know, I fucking did it. It's amazing. It's so cool. The next day I get a call and I look and I see that it's him and I pick up my phone and he's on the other side and he's like, so the deal's done. Uh-huh. Congratulations. And I was excited in the moment yesterday that it finally got accomplished because it's a year's worth of work and effort. And I know it's big logistically, but I don't feel anything internally. I actually feel more empty than I did before. And my response to him was, okay, great. What do you want to do about that? You know, what do you want to do about that? It's great that you're acknowledging it. Are you ready to work with it? Are you ready to talk about it? Because what he started to realize was that all of this accomplishment, all of this busyness for him, and this isn't everybody in, in, in general, but for him, a lot of the, the extra work, the extra building, the, you know, the empire that he was trying to build was in avoidance. It was an avoidance mechanism of the hollowness that he had felt internally. And he had been running for a very long time from certain parts of his past, his childhood, his previous marriage, the way he treated his kids. And when this sort of monumental accolade came into place, he couldn't help but be struck by the internal experience that he was left with. And I think that this is the case for many of us, that when we reach our peaks is where the truth of our life starts to emerge. And this is why I'm so fascinated by working with men who are in these positions, because it's oftentimes when we, when we hit the goal, you know, when we get the gold medal, when we achieve, uh, you know, pulling in the, the venture funding or the, you know, a round, uh, investment, or we sell the company. It's in these moments that we've been working towards for a very long time where the reality of our life really shows itself. And, and sometimes it's not the reality that we're hoping for, but it's the reality that we have. And we can either continue to run from that or we can stand and face it. And for the majority of men, they haven't seen a model of what it looks like to say, shit, this isn't what I, want, what I was hoping or expecting to feel. Uh, maybe I should get some support. 
you know, maybe I should explore what this is. Maybe I can slow down enough to kind of make, try and make sense of what's emerging in me and in my life that maybe needs to be tended to versus this continual rise and obsession with building and expansion and, you know, everything else, every other uh, sort of word that we want to put in place for that. So those are just some examples. What I really feel there that came up again, just as you're talking, I obviously see a lot of myself in the stories and it was almost that the more externally successful I was, the more I felt I couldn't verbalize when I didn't have fulfillment because it was almost like, wait, who you have everything. Like you have everything a person could want compared to the majority of people that have ever lived in all of existence. How dare you have a negative experience of that, you ungrateful bastard, right? Right. right. And so I felt like it just gets like, it almost, the clamp gets tighter. And then I felt that I couldn't verbalize that to anybody else. But it is interesting. It's then the solution is, well, I guess I just have to make the lie bigger to myself. Because at least if I can make the lie bigger to myself, I could push through. And maybe there is some truth that on the other side of the billion dollar exit, I'll finally feel like enough. Uh, but you know, again, I think that's the plight that I find, I find so interesting and, and it, you know, kind of transitions to the question of, I feel like this is the gift of the polarity of a partner. And, you know, again, for, I know for, for many men, it's a woman for, for many men, it's just a feminine, right? It's just like a feminine energy in another person. Uh, I've spent a lot of my life resenting and resisting the feminine polarity. I found it to be an an, an inconvenience, understanding that I was living in that rational mind, right? And the idea of someone bringing in emotions and irrationality and just, well, I feel this way. Why? I don't know. I just feel this way. I'm like, you're making me crazy. It doesn't <laughs> reconcile through the filter. So, uh, you know, that kind of opens up to me into, for men that have struggled in being able to truly be in relationship with the feminine and not go through that hedonic cycle of it's novel, it's exciting, she thinks I'm amazing, wait, this is not great, gone, next one, next one, next one, and so forth. Um, I'd love to kind of hear more about people's journey in relation to that, or maybe even your journey in, in, you know, in relation to the feminine. Yeah, well, just, uh, I mean, it is infuriating sometimes where our feminine partners or the women in our lives are bringing us their emotions and they're saying, I feel this way. And we're like, but why? And we're trying to figure it out rationally. I mean, that is just an infuriating cycle, you know? (laughs) So I just want to acknowledge that. (laughs) And I also wanted to acknowledge what you were talking about before, which is sort of like this comparison that we do. You know, I've had all this success and so I should be happy because I have it so much better than other people. You know, I'm so much more fortunate than other people. I've worked so much harder than other people. And we've kind of all heard the saying, you know, comparison is, is the thief, thief of joy. And that's true. But I think that comparison is also the thief of healing and wholeness. That the fulfillment that we seek, the depth that we know we're capable of creating within ourselves and our lives is nearly impossible when we're stuck comparing ourselves to other people. Well, I didn't have it as bad as John. You know, his dad did X, Y, and Z to him. Or, you know, my life doesn't look as bad as Ted because look what's happening with his wife and his kids. And so I got to be, you know, I just got to be super grateful. And so we kind of put the blinders on to our own human experience by degrading our own human experience through the lens of comparing it to another's and saying, well, they have it worse. And in some ways it's a, it's a bullshit cop-out mechanism 
you know, because if the people that you're comparing yourself to are friends, um, you're both doing them a disservice. You're sort of disrespecting them, disrespecting their experience, not understanding their experience. And you're, you're in some ways disassociating from your own. You know, you're getting to say, well, mine's not so bad or I should really be grateful for it. So I just want to put that out there because I think oftentimes what we do in order to avoid the hardship of our own life is we compare it to another's. And, uh, you know, in my book, the first line is a man's work begins with pain. And I, I wrote that specifically because I think that how we as men relate to our own challenges, our own suffering, our own hardship speaks volumes about who we are. And for many of us, we haven't been taught how to deal with that part of ourselves. And so we either do two things. One, we act from it, which a lot of guys do in their relationships or, you know, in their business and they become volatile and aggressive and, you know, hostile and they yell and they cuss and swear, fuck you, I can't believe you do that or whatever that looks like. Or we completely shut it down and we try and stuff it deep within ourselves, which adds to the vacancy that we feel internally. So that's just a side rant. Thanks for attending my TED Talk. Um, I'll answer your other question more directly now, which is our relationship to, to women in the feminine. Jung had a great quote where he said, women stand at the edge of what a man knows about himself. Women stand at the edge of a man's shadow or where a man's shadow begins. And so in many ways, what I've talked about, and I'll share a little bit of personal experience here, but I'll also sort of just talk generally about our relationship to women as men. What that means is that we, we don't often understand women and the feminine and our need, our drive, our desire to try and figure them out is the problem. It's the behavior that we need to move away from because we, we as men are often very external, right? We like to look at things outside of us, figure them out, try and fix them, try and solve them, try to build them, try to improve them. And we do that to the women in our lives, right? We look at our wives and our girlfriends and the women that we're, that we're dating and we're like, let me try and figure you out. Let me try and solve your problems. Let me try and fix you. Let me try and improve you and improve your lives. And when we do that, we're fucked immediately because we don't actually see who that woman is. And what she receives is, you don't understand me. You don't love me. You don't accept me. You don't embrace me fully. You're trying to alter me or improve my life or change who I am or change my behavior, or you don't like when I'm emotional. And so when our partners get upset, when the women in our lives get upset or angry at us or sad because of something that we've done, our natural reaction as a man, if we're living in our head and our rational mind is to say, let me solve that for you. Let me fix that for you. And that's not what they're needing or wanting in that moment. So to sort of turn this back around, our relationship to women reveals what we don't know about ourselves as men. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Because that might seem like a vague statement. I'll give you a very clear example. When I was in my 20s, I was a massive womanizer, loved women, loved pursuing them, loved getting with them. I'd be in relationships. I mean, I, I lacked a lot of integrity. I would be in relationships, you know, be in a relationship with a woman and I'd be pursuing women outside of that. 
I like dating them. I like sleeping with them. I mean, they were really, they were kind of like my drug and distraction of choice. And the whole time that I was with them, that I was with women, I mean, I, I'm married now, so I'm still with a woman, but the whole time that I was in that kind of pursuit, one thing started to become very apparent. The more that I liked a woman, the more I felt drawn to her, the more that I wanted her in my life, the more that I felt myself craving her validation, craving her uh, recognition, right? Her to acknowledge me, the more I wanted to succeed with her and win with her and get it right with her. And what it was revealing within myself was that I was insecure. I was very insecure because I didn't have an internal framework of recognition. I didn't have compassion for myself. I didn't have a, a framework of being able to validate myself. And to be honest, the way that I spoke to myself internally was borderline disgusting. You know, it was abusive. The way, I talked, the way that I used to talk to myself was harsh and demeaning and self-deprecating. And I would say things like, you know, what the fuck's wrong with you? And how could you do that? And you're such a stupid piece of shit and blah, 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 blah. That was the way that I spoke to myself. And so when I would get into a relationship with a woman that I really loved or cared about, and I wanted her to get close to me, because I lacked this mechanism of, of internal compassion, and because I lacked this mechanism and the skill internally of self-recognition and self-validation, I began to seek that from the women that I would date. I needed them to give it to me, right? And so we as men do different versions of this. Some men, when they're with a woman, um, it will reveal exactly what it revealed for me, right? That, they, that they're missing validation, that they're missing a sense of, uh, of confidence, that they're, you know, they're, they feel sort of insecure underneath the surface. Or what will be revealed is that they're deeply afraid of being loved. And so when they're around a woman and the closer that woman gets, the more that woman wants to be with him, the more fear that will start to emerge within that man and he'll start to sabotage and push her away because he doesn't feel worthy, because he doesn't feel like he has value or because he feels un unconsciously or out of his core like he's going to damage or harm that woman because he doesn't have a healthy relationship with his own feminine qualities, with his own emotions, with his own grief or sadness, with his own anger, with his own sense of compassion, with his own sense of self-validation. And so he'll push her away actively to try and quote unquote, protect her. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there because I think I said a, a good yeah. amount and I can see that there's something present for you. Yeah, no, you, you, you landed on my story at the end there, which is uh, I've recently come to terms with the fact that I was a very soft, creative, cuddly, loving kid. And when I was yeah. in that mode, the other kids used to kick the shit out of me because they were like, and they literally call me a pussy. They'd be like, oh, look at the pussy. Let's go beat him up. Right. Uh -huh. And so it was interesting to see that I actually saw my feminine qualities at times as a weakness, like that inner soft part of me that was emotional and wanted to connect. And got along with the girls, you know, it was like I was in first and second grade that way. Um, and so I think I immediately saw feminine as weakness, stuff it down, rational robot, become an alpha type that models the other boys that are going around beating people up. Um, I never became a bully in that way, but it, it was more that I've only recently come to understand that I saw the feminine as a weakness. Uh -huh. And so when I severed from it, uh, I 
resented it because it was that was what got me beat up, and that is ultimately why I ended up resenting all of my partners. So right. it's a it's a really interesting thing to see. You kind of hit the nail on the head, and I've only recently drawn the lines that got me there. Uh, and and I imagine for a lot of people, it comes from so many different places. And I I was resonating even with that internal voice that where does that come from? Where does that like what are you shithead? What's wrong with you? Like well. Can I, can I speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I feel of like course. that might be helpful. Yeah. So we'll just, this is the inner critic, what we're talking about, right? That, that voice inside of our head that's, we, and we can give it multiple names, right? The judge, the critic, the commentator, right? Whatever feels the most aligned or real for you, just use that label, right? The, the label is less important than its function. The inner critic is a very interesting part especially within men. And for a lot of high achievers, what I have noticed over the years is that they will oftentimes use what I call dark motivation to try and accomplish their goals. So dark motivation, another way of putting it is shame-based motivation. So I'm trying to achieve in order to prove somebody wrong. Those bullies, I'm going to fucking show them. So I'm going to become somebody that's so competent and so alpha and so successful that it will protect me from ever experiencing that type of pain again. And that becomes our driving factor. And that can be beautiful and brilliant for a little while, right? It can really, you can accomplish some shit with that. But eventually the problem with dark motivation and shame-based motivation, and I've seen this time and time and time again with, with us as men, is that it reaches a point where it has a net negative impact on us physically and ment mentally and emotionally, where it starts to become more draining than it is generative, where the, no matter how big the results are that we're producing in our career or in our business or financially or within our relationship, that we either don't believe the results that we're, that we're getting, right? We don't, we don't enjoy them. We're not able to celebrate them. Um, or we're just left with this emptiness, right? So that dark motivation is based off of shame. I don't want to feel shame. And so I'm going to try and achieve greatness to prove somebody or something wrong. A story that I have about myself, a story that I have about business or the world, you know, trying to prove myself to my father, trying to prove myself to those bullies. Um, that's dark motivation. That's shame-based motivation. And eventually that shame-based motivation will start to consume us from the inside. And it will start to require that we drink more or smoke more weed or numb out more or watch more porn or do more coke or hire more prostitutes, right? Or whatever it is. And so the price that we pay for it eventually is that we can't sustain that type of shame-based motivation. Why? Because we're not fucking recognizing ourselves. We're not validating ourselves. And so it doesn't matter how great the achievement is. We're not left with the nourishment and the sustenance that is supposed to come along with the achievement, right? When yeah. you achieve something, yeah. you are supposed to, to metabolize some kind of nourishment psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, right? You're supposed to receive something. And if you're just producing results and building businesses and achieving goals out of shame, there there's no nourishment in that eventually. And so eventually you have to, you start to eat yourself on the inside. So back to the inner critic, back to this, and maybe we can return to the dark motivation if, if you want. 
We will. But <laughs> this inner critic, what I've found to be true, uh, so I'll use myself as, as an example. My inner dialogue was like abusive. You know, it was really, I would get super angry when I would do something wrong, when I would screw up in my relationship, when I would screw up in my career. Immediately, that part was just like, I mean, it was on me. It was like a tiger just waiting to pounce at any sight or scent that I have done something wrong. And that would be right on me, like, what the fuck's wrong with you? How could you do that? You know, it would start picking me apart. And then I would feel more agitated and more aggressive. And I didn't know how to deal with that. And so I would eventually take it out on people around me. You know, I'd be more controlling at work, more controlling as, as a leader. Um, you know, I'd be harsher in my relationships and keep people at a distance. And what I started to realize when I did this work probably 10, 12 years ago with a, with a mentor of mine, he was in his uh, mid-70s and he had spent years um, training in Jungian psychology and I apprenticed with him. I was fortunate enough to spend, you know, two and a half years apprenticing with this man and learning these modalities. But he said one simple question that really screwed me up. <laughs> I was going to say, fuck me up. It really fucked me up. He said, who does that inner critic sound like? Whose voice is that? And where did you learn it? And at first I was like, well, I don't, I don't really know. And he said, okay, well, write down everything that your inner critic is saying on a piece of paper. And I do this exercise for my clients all the time because it's so impactful. I said, he said, write down all of your, uh, all the statements that you can remember that the inner critic says. And I said, okay, so I write them down. The fuck's wrong with you? You're such a stupid piece of shit. You know, I'm like writing these things out. I'm like, God damn, this is, this is brutal to read, you know? This is brutal to look at. And he said, okay, who said those things to you? And immediately I realized that all of those comments I had heard from my stepfather, every single one of them. Wow. Every single one of them. And so I was carrying on this legacy of a man who had been verbally and emotionally abusive to me. And the truth that most men don't want to come into contact with is that their inner critic is a legacy of somebody in their life who was harsh or abusive, or so overly critical that it was damaging to them. A critical mother, um, or a, a hypercritical father that they can never get anything right for, or, you know, in some cases, it's their voice that they created because they weren't living up to the expectations of who they thought they needed to be for their father, right? Some guys have this you know, larger than life dad that they're like, oh my God, he's so amazing. He's so incredible. I just want to be like him. And when they don't, they beat the shit out of themselves. Right. So, but all of us have a legacy of where that voice came from and getting into touch with whose legacy have I been carry, carrying on? You know, is it one of my parents? Is it a sibling? Is it a coach that I grew up with that was just brutal on me? You know, and do, and do I need to continue that legacy or can I shift it? Can I begin to let go of that and speak to myself in a way where I can still get results without punishing myself? And this is the last thing I'm going to say, and then I'll pause. That's the, the type of discipline that most of us men have learned, is that discipline is a punishment. That in order for me to be disciplined or feel disciplined, I need to punish myself. Because that's what we learn as young boys, right? You step in a line, you're angry, you do something wrong right? You push back with one of your parents, you get punished. That's, that's the tactic that, mo that most young boys have experienced. 
And so when they get older and they're trying to be disciplined in their routines and their habits, in their mind frame, in their mindset, how they do that is by trying to punish themselves. Oh, I got that wrong. Well, what should I do? I should beat the shit out of myself to make sure that I don't do it again. And again, that tactic might work in the interim. It might work to lead you to a certain place, but eventually it's going to have a net negative result. Yeah, I mean, that's a big unlock for me. I, I've never... I've never held that thought that most of the ways I try to get myself to do things is like an angry gym coach. It's unreal. And, and I'm like, I, no wonder why I fall out of habits like that when I'm like, like, for example, fitness is a really big one for me. I want to make myself get into a fitness routine. Like I hear so many guys say that to me. And it's like, no wonder why I don't want to do it because I'm just yelling at myself the whole time inside, like, be better be stronger, look better naked. Like what's wrong with you? You know, like it's, you know, it's just like, wow, this is not, this is not loving at all. So that's, that's really interesting. And, and it does perfectly tee up the next point, which is again, I have guitars on my wall behind me for those that are not seeing the video. Um, as a musician, one of the, the incredible things I've done is I thought I had to be the martyr for my art. And yeah. so I always thought that I had to suffer and create from dark energy. So it's the only energy I ever knew. And as soon as I heard like hippie music and happy shit and like, you know, those lifetime movies, I was like, who makes this crap? Who feels happy and then creates anyway? Because at that point, I feel like I would have no motivation to do anything. And so I'm really wondering for those of us that are often feeling like we have to suffer to create, we have to be these malcontents to make the world a better place. I'm wondering where your creation force comes from or as you support these artists that you're talking about. Have they been able to tap into light energy? What does that even feel like? What is it? Because that, that is one of my life goals is to truly be able to create as equally beautiful things from a place of light and love. Yeah, well, I appreciate the question. And, you know, life, life's hard. Life is suffering. You know, if you look at the Buddhist tradition or the Zen tradition, it talks a lot about suffering being an inevitability and a part of life. And so it's not that we want to ignore those things. I think that the tendency that some people have is to kind of spiritually bypass on the other side of this, right? Is to just avoid suffering entirely and just light, love, and rainbows. And I mean, that's, that's just as false as the other end of the spectrum. But one of the things that I've found to be incredibly helpful is to look at things from a generative standpoint, right? So Am I creating or wanting to build this habit? I'll give you an example. I, I turned 40 in November. Um, and my goal, my mission is to be in the best shape of my life by 40. And so I built this gym in my home uh, and I've been working out four or five times a week. But rather than saying, I hate the way my body looks or what's wrong with me, I need to go train or any of those other things. My mission is towards something generative, something positive, right? So rather than saying, I'm doing this because I don't want to look like this, I'm saying, I'm doing this because I want to move in this direction. Here's how I want to feel, right? I want to feel strong. I want to feel competent. I want to feel like I can do muscle-ups on uh, the rings in my basement, the gymnastics rings, right? So we move ourselves away from I am doing this, I'm trying to produce these results because I don't want to feel this way. And we move towards a, I'm doing these things because I want to feel this way. And we start to shift our attention towards, I want to feel grounded. I want to feel 
healthy. I want to feel positive. I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror and enjoy the body that I see, right? And so we start to shift our lens of focus towards away from what we don't want and towards what we do want, what we want to create. And there's some great work in positive psychology by a woman named Carol Dweck, who wrote a book called Mindset. And the book focuses on exactly what we're talking about, which is fixed versus growth mindset. A fixed mindset is essentially another term for dark motivation, right? I'm doing this because I don't want to feel this way. I don't want my body to look like this. I want to get away from how I feel or how I look or what my bank account looks like versus a growth mindset or light motivation says, here's how I want to feel. Here's what I want to pursue. Here's what I want to create. And here's what I want to generate. And when we can do that, there is an internal psychological shift where we're not trying to get away from something. We're trying to move towards something. And for a lot of men, I've noticed that this is sometimes challenging. And maybe this is, you know, me and some of the men that I've worked with, but I think that many of us have been taught that we, that we need to suffer and we need to struggle in order to sort of prove our worth. And, you know, you certainly will suffer and you will struggle in life. Those are sort of a given. Um, but choosing the suffering, right? Doing the cold showers, doing the cold plunge, doing the workout from a place of what you want to build and what you want to create is a much more generative process that allows you to free up some space for recognition, for validation, for fulfillment, for joy, for reward, where you can say, look, I'm creating and building the body that I want, the routines that I want, right? So the light motivation actually requires that you recognize yourself along the way, that you recognize what you're building, what you're creating, what you're doing, who you're becoming, who you're doing it with, and that that in and of itself is a, is a part of creating this, this wonderful um, way of being where self-recognition is sort of baked into the process. Uh, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, as, as I hear you saying it, I am thinking about the fact that it's usually almost like pushing off the side of a pool, but I'm pushing off the negativity, the rejection of self versus uh -huh. pulling into the possibility of what can be and being really excited about that potential. So can I, 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 go can ahead. I say one more thing about that? Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed this, uh, I, I love neuroscience. Like I, I'm kind of a geek around how the brain works and how the body works and how the nervous system works. And I, I interviewed this guy years and years and years ago. His name was Bo Lotto. And what, like, what an interesting name, Bo Lotto. But he's like one of the leading neuroscientists when it comes to change and how our brains are actually wired. And I'll never forget, we were talking about how the brain is wired. And he said, your brain is wired as a pattern recognition machine. So your brain is literally designed to try and recognize patterns in the world and then assimilate based on a couple foundational criteria. Number one, are you safe? And number two, can you choose patterns that are going to keep you safe? Now, why is it important? Because the known is safer than the unknown. So our brains are, desired to, are designed to keep us safe and to avoid change. They are literally designed and wired to avoid change. Why? Because most of the time we don't know what's on the other side of change. We don't know what's going to happen when we lose the 10 pounds 
We don't know what's going to happen when we put the effort into building the body that we want or whatever it is, whatever we're looking to change, right? Maybe you're looking to have a deeper level of intimacy and, and sexual connection with your wife or your girlfriend or your partner. That's probably going to require a good amount of vulnerability. That's probably going to require a good amount of open conversations and dialogue where you talk about the type of sex or role plays or, you know, whatever it is that you're wanting to experience. And we don't know, our rational mind cannot predict how those conversations are going to go, how the experiences are going to go. And so what does it do? It tries to convince us to move back towards what we know, the dysfunctional relationship, the unhealthy conversations, the shitty sex that we're having, etc. It pulls us back to the known, even if the known is abusive, is unhealthy, and is what we don't want. So we have to work sometimes against our, our instinctual nature for comfort, for safety. And we have to venture into the unknown. And this is the one thing I really want to emphasize. Change requires you as a man to choose consciously to walk into the territory of the unknown. To say, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know how this conversation is going to go. I don't know if selling this business is going to go well, but I know I need to let it go. I don't know what's on the other side of it. I don't know what it's going to look like for, for me to let go of it. But I know intuitively, I know in my gut that this is the right decision for me to make. And when we can begin as men to choose to face the unknown each and every single day and be in awe of it and find wonder in it and to practice that, we actually sharpen ourselves in many ways to how we relate to the feminine. Because the feminine is the unknown. The feminine, as, as we see it, is very chaotic. It's very sporadic. We don't, we don't understand it oftentimes. We want to control it, right? We want to temper it. We want to fix it. We want to organize it and create order out of it and make it structured, right? And so how we practice being, I don't want to say better, but more efficient more grounded with the women in our lives, more grounded in our relationships, more grounded with our own feminine, is we practice choosing to accept the unknown, to say, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm open to finding out. And I don't need to spend so much of my time and effort and energy and rational bandwidth trying to simulate every possible outcome that could potentially happen, running myself into the ground trying to, trying to figure out what's going to happen when I can just allow it to unfold and see the data and the information that emerges out of the unknown. Man, that is powerful. That is powerful. The idea of truly embracing the unknown, being okay with it, not kicking and screaming. You know, I think through obviously a lot of the people that I speak to are, you know, business owners, business leaders, people that own jets generally are entrepreneurs. And I see, despite the success, the amount of kicking and screaming we do as we lean into that, like, this isn't what I wanted to have happen. And it's like missing the gift in that moment of uncertainty instead of seeing like, there's some gold in there. And in fact, I don't know, I, I just really saw for myself last year, the more I could sit in the chaos and the uncertainty and just metabolize it within my body and let it come out as like a nugget of gold. Hey. Uh, I, I just really hold that in my heart as my invitation for myself to tap into my masculine. And I think a lot of what you said validated what was kind of just an intuitive experience. 
there's so much you said here that is magic. And I do want to turn it back to you before we wrap. And I could talk to you for days, man. I feel like you just have so much wisdom to offer. Uh, I'm just grateful to have been able to watch your journey over the last couple of years. And um, here's, you know, you're this guy who's at the top of your game, influencing people from every corner of the world and every walk of life. Uh, you've got this, you know, like an amazing family. And, and what do you wake up dreaming about? What's the dream beyond for you now? You know, I think it kind of ties into what we were talking about before is that with all of those things said, there's still a lot of unknowns in my life. And a huge part of the, what I would just to use your language, the dream beyond is for me is to continue to, to the best of my capacity and my ability to make decisions that are going to lead me closer and closer to the type of authentic life that brings me a depth of fulfillment and joy and challenge that, that lights me up. Because if I can be a walking embodiment of what it looks like to be a man who's present to the hardship, to the obstacles, to the, uh, the authentic expression of who he wants to be, that to me is a deep sense of purpose. And so I think the dream beyond is continuing to write, which I have really found um, to be very confronting and very challenging, but also deeply and, and richly rewarding. It's spending more time in nature. You know, I have a 22-month-old son and uh, bringing him camping, you know, and taking him out into these excursions in nature. And I think the real, the sort of big dream is to, you know, I could talk about turning Man Talks into the number one organization in the world for men, or I could talk about having my book be the number one for men. And all of those things are meaningful for me. I, you know, I'd be lying if they, if they weren't. Um, but I think the big thing for me is, is bringing men back into contact with the strength and beauty of who they are, walking them back home into their inner kingdom within themselves and doing that out in nature. You know, there's something very primal that I think that we've disconnected from as men as we've just moved into cities. And so a lot of my work, um, I'm focusing more and more about bringing men back into nature and to do some of the work that we've been talking about in person in nature, you know, amongst the trees with the bears off in the distance or the lions or wherever the hell I, you know, can take men in, in the world. And so that's, that's the, that's the big dream. Well, if you mean it in a literal sense, sign me up. That sounds absolutely incredible. And I think on behalf of all men and the women and children that interact with them, I'm just really grateful for the work that you do. And uh, thanks for continuing to be a guide to, I think, something most of us have lost the way back okay. to. Uh, and, you know, again, for anyone listening, there was so much here. It's so rich. I, I'm going to have almost a hard time summarizing, but I do think the stuff that really stands out for me is the find the way to embrace the uncertainty. Really listen to that inner voice. Decide if that's the voice you want speaking to you or guiding you. And if not, make that change. And ultimately, I think where we started was that idea of first acknowledging that we need some help. We need yeah. some help. And maybe, you know, maybe we are experiencing emotions that 
are true and correct and not trying to stuff those down and say my rational mind refuses to reconcile that that you know reality um just to be more compassionate loving to ourselves and i think women could teach us a lot in that so uh i, I really appreciate the time today please go check out connor's new book men's work a practical guide to face your darkness and self-sabotage and find freedom i'm currently diving through it right now and he's the one who spoke it on the audible so i appreciate the way you speak man it's super calming to hear you you know, talk with such uh, confidence and power and courage of your own story. And uh, again, for everyone, I hope this was a really rich podcast experience. And Connor, thanks again for all your time. Thank you. Be well. Thank you for listening to The Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review it. It really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Instagram.com slash Nick Tarasio, LinkedIn.com slash in slash Nick Tarasio, or YouTube.com slash N Tarasio.